Slate Political Gab Fest for September 30th, 2020, the Would You Shut Up Man edition. This is a special edition we're doing after the first presidential debate. It is Wednesday morning. We will do a regular show for you tomorrow. So this is just going to be a, a quick show just about the debate. I'm David Plotz. In Washington, D.C., I am joined from New Haven from her home by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And from also from Washington, where he was uh, commentating on the debate and it just got off commentating this morning on the debate is John Dickerson of CBS News and CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. And on today's GabFest, just one topic. Uh, last night was the first presidential debate between Joe Biden the Democratic nominee, and Donald Trump, the Republican nominee, and the president, uh, in case you were under a rock. If you, I can't imagine the listener to the show who doesn't know that last night was the first debate. Um, Emily, let's start with you. You know, we've now had time to sleep on it, uh, time to absorb the horror that was this truly, truly, truly remarkably horrible 90 minutes in American political history. What is your? What was your uh, initial reaction to it? Yeah, I feel like maybe this can be our cleansing ritual, and then we can uh, shed it from our systems. It was so unpleasant to listen to. The interrupting, the just real rank bullying from Donald Trump. I think Biden was in a really tough position, and he mostly, he held his ground. I also felt like there were moments he kind of missed opportunities to have good comebacks. Um I thought it was smart. The best moments of the debate, I thought, was were when Biden spoke directly to the audience and was able to kind of get himself on message and back on track from the kind of pandemonium. And I also started out feeling frustrated with Chris Wallace, the moderator. And by the end, I actually thought he'd done maybe as good a job as you could do in that circumstance. And he asked some really good, smart follow-up questions along the way, which I honestly think if you could somehow separate your emotional response there were some telling moments in which they both said some things that actually like were interesting. But the truth is, I think most of us are just going to take away from this debate this feeling, a visceral feeling, a gut check feeling about what it was like to listen to. And then there was this staggering moment in which the president refused to condemn white supremacists and gave this call out to the Proud Boys, a hate group that they are very excited about and um, celebrating today. So that was... That was pretty shocking. I actually found the more shocking moment. I know that was a, I mean, there were so many shocking moments, but the moment when he refused to even remotely wave at endorsing the legitimacy of the election. Like, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear yeah. that this, the re-election strategy is there is no election. There is just victory and, and we will delegitimize the democratic process to do it if he can manage it because he's not, he doesn't appear to be campaigning for anything like a let me win this legitimately by winning electoral votes with a majority of votes in each of the states where I'm going to get electoral votes. That does not seem to be a strategy. But let me, we'll get back to that. John, same kind of question, which is, you know, now that you have, now that you've marinated on this and you've talked about it endlessly, what, what did you make of it? Well, yeah, I, I mean, so it was all those things. He interrupted, the president interrupted, I think, 73 times is the count, which means his interruptions had interruptions. You know, he's behind in the polls, has been shedding voters of his, his coalition since 2016. I don't see anything that he did that not only are people not going to join 
the Trump train now based on his behavior, but I should think that the way he behaved shoved anybody who was trying to give him a second look away from him. I mean, I just kept thinking he's the president of the United States and he wasn't behaving in any way. I get the strategy. He was trying to throw Biden off course. He was trying to get in his head. He was trying to fluster him and make Biden look unsettled. Biden mostly weathered it. When, you, when you're when you a challenger and you do that against Hillary Clinton and, and she's uh, unpopular, it, it might work a little bit better, but he's now the president of the United States and Joe Biden is not you know, unpopular in the way that Hillary Clinton is. And by the way, the stakes right now are extremely high. There are real and important things to be talking about in the country. And the fact that the president was more animated about some conspiracy theory about Hunter Biden than he was about any really of the other issues, I guess, mail-in ballots, he was also self-interestedly passionate about. But the fact that he showed no passion towards the obligations of his job and only towards the tactics of his strategy um, was a misalignment. But finally, on the point of white supremacy that that, that Emily mentioned, um, there shouldn't be an easier job for a president than to condemn white supremacy, right? And Taft said, speak not so that you're understood, but speak so it's impossible to misunderstand you. And this isn't the first time the president has had this problem. When Tapper in March of 2016 asked him about the KKK, he refused to condemn them. Mitch McConnell said he had he showed seeming ambivalence towards the KKK. After Charlottesville, in his immediate statement afterward, he didn't call out the white supremacists. He called out both sides. Then again, there's last night. Is there a person on the planet who has a faster trigger finger when he wants to condemn somebody, including teenagers, gold star mothers, the mayor of London after a terrorist attack? And yet when it comes to condemning white supremacists, he gets marble mouthed. Emily, I want to um, go back to the strategy question that John raised. Do you agree with John that the interrupting was a conscious strategy to disorient Biden? And it's not just simply that the president is is accustomed to friendly audiences and he uh, he just wants to get his say in and he believes he's the president. He's allowed to do it. And and I guess I'm asking, was there a method to this this like deep unpleasantness? Yeah, I thought he was stepping on Biden and and it it worked in the sense that you could see that Biden has to, like, he got distracted. I mean, it was super distracting. But also, I felt like Biden's stutter was more apparent. I mean, to me, the, like, I was watching in Biden's reaction this kind of deep discomfort with the whole thing. And that's what bullies do. They throw you off course. They overwhelm you if they can. And it felt like a kind of you know, pummeling from the playground. It was like you could, you know, we've heard these stories about Trump in high school being a jerk to the people around him. It felt like he was just channeling all of that id. And I have to say, I mean, I'm just going to essentialize for a second. Watching that debate as a woman, like, I live with lovely men, but like all of the moments I've had in my life of men just being um, caustic and cruel and unfair and just over the top in their aggression. Most, like, most they, of them on the show. No. no, not on the show really at all. But like I have had that experience in my life and it was sort of washed over me. The point at which Biden was trying to land some lines about Bo Biden serving mm. in Iraq and Trump just went after him with just such viciousness uh, about 
Hunter Biden, and you know, these are his kids. And like, he has plenty of ammunition to lay out about the Trump kids if he wants. He had decided not to do that. I think that was wise. But it, that moment, which I understand the Republican Party is like playing this morning as their victory clip, I had to like hide under a blanket. I was so upset about the just like uh, what felt to me like a just um, totally underhanded, below the belt way of debating. Okay. Can I just jump on that tiny bit, which is that I I had this feeling that we're in a position where everybody kind of feels jagged about the way the world is going right now. You know, as COVID is rising with uh, the colder weather, you know, people need to be taken in the opposite direction. And he came with a sawtooth. And and so what you describe, Emily, felt like it was consistent with that. Um, We in the CBS poll, 69% said that the debate made them feel annoyed I mean, the president has the, you know, the overwhelming lion's share of the blame for that feeling. I I just, it's, I can't imagine that people want four more years, because the trajectory here is the president has never gotten less aggressive and less caustic. So imagine, imagine on that same trajectory four years from now. You know what else I was thinking about? Do you remember how Obama kind of messed up the first debate with Mitt Romney when Obama was president? Like, obviously, this is different, but I was thinking that maybe being president does not prepare you very well to debate, not just that, like, you don't have enough time to really, like, read all the books, but that the environment you're in is one that's affirming almost all the time. And debating is about actually, like, addressing your own weaknesses and thinking from other points of view. And Trump was so unable to do that. Well, I mean, he's also he's literally unable to do that. I mean, that is an element of the narcissistic personality is the inability to do that. And Trump did make an apparently an affirmative case, an affirmative effort not to learn how to deal with this, except through a tactic of interrupting. And, and, and it, it was, I think it was actually massively effective on its own terms. I mean, he certainly, whatever preparation Biden did about the substance of the debate was mostly thrown away and lost because it was all overwhelmed by the chaos and unpleasantness that Trump introduced to it by refusing to hold a debate and simply to try to bully. Trump didn't prepare too much even when he was a candidate in 2016. Um, so, yeah, it's not his, um, his way to go. And, but in a sense, for the, for the debate that he carried out last night, he's been pre- preparing his whole life. I mean, in other words, that strategy is very consistent with um, – both the bullying that's been described repeatedly in his life, and then secondly, as was once described about his strategy, is to throw a grenade in the room, let it explode, and then run in and, and try and command the chaos. And that seems like uh, that was exactly what he was doing last night. I also thought he landed some good lines. Like, most of them weren't true, but he said them with a lot of <laughs> emphasis. Well, no, I mean, but I think that's the thing about debating Trump, is he doesn't have any shame about lying sure. about his tax returns. He lies like he means it. And so in the moment, it's quite hard to deal with. All the blaming of Biden, the idea of like, no, no, I'm the champion of the economy. I've saved the country from COVID. I banned China. You know, his 47 years, 47, mm-hmm. whatever it is, 47 months 47 comparison. Months. Yeah. I think that's a good line. Like he is, he has the his zingers land. It's only been 45 months, though. But he's, <laughs> well, like, I said, the, he, like, he's yeah. good at the false and misleading zingers. I mean, but Biden's most effective moments for me were when he was able to directly address the camera. When, yeah. when Trump stopped interrupting him and when he was able to sort of make a real heartfelt direct case. Uh, and not even the parts where he was talking about, you know, you're such a liar. 
but just the parts when he was speaking directly to the American public. And that felt genuine and effective. And, and I'm sure it was genuine and effective knowing Biden's history. Uh, my question to you, John, is about the upcoming debates. Is, do you think it is, A, do you think they're going to happen? Do you think it is likely that the president is going to agree to do more debates? Could Biden agree not to do more debates? And B, if they do happen, do you think that the, the president is likely to come away from this thinking, yes, I need to keep interrupting him, keep being an asshole and throw him off his game because that it clearly does rattle Biden? Uh, on the second question first, it has often been the case with the president when he does something like this and gets criticized for it, he just does it more as a kind of uh, like the, just that to, that's the way he's wired. So you could imagine that at some point, somebody's going to show him the reaction in the constituent groups he needs, you know, his entire suburban plan to scare college educated white women about violence is undermined by his own behavior. I mean, in other words, the, the, he's not picking up new voters with that group. He's been trying to court in other ways. So perhaps that could make the way he change. He thinks change. Um, Biden's already committed to the other debates. The president could very well, I suppose. I'm surprised, and I, you know, it's relatively early in the day, but I assume the White House will go after Chris Wallace, turn him into a foil. The, you know, the game was rigged, and and therefore all criticism of the president is unfair. I suspect that will happen, and so you could imagine that blossoming into something bigger. All the debates are rigged. I'm not going to participate. But going back, I think the president also thinks he's his best advocate, and this is a huge stage for him to do so. I guess what I would be concerned about is that we've also seen when he gets in a pickle that he creates diversions and sows additional chaos to distract from the other chaos. Hugh Seide once told a story of walking to the White House during the Vietnam War, and one of Johnson's advisors came up to him and said, you know, we need a new war. And you feel like that a little bit. So that's something to be concerned about because, uh, you know, the distraction chaos might be um, have its own harm, you know, problems. Isn't the next one a town hall? Is it? I couldn't remember whether the next one was a town hall or the one after that was. I think it's, it's the next one. But do you think he can behave this way at a town hall? No, I think that will help. Oh, yeah, I also think point. the whole time I was dying for them to turn the mics off at two minutes. Yeah. I assume that they can't make that rule change at this point, but like that's the only thing that would save this. Yeah, I'm sure they. There's no way. If I were even a campaign manager, I would never agree to that. That's ridiculous. Well, do you think that's, it's more ridiculous than what we witnessed? Uh, well, let me put it this way: If I were Trump's campaign manager, I would never yeah, agree to I, that. That's crazy. But I think that's so. So it it's it would be much better. Of course, it would be better. But there's no. It would be malpractice for Trump's campaign manager to agree to something like right. that. Right, and I think that that's. I think you've both got it exactly right. It would be better if the mic could cut off, or it'd be perhaps the mic could kind of draft down after a certain period of time. In other words, so it wasn't super abrupt, but they would just go silent, sort of fade. Um, fade the, would uh, be good. I don't know why it's, but I mean, I'm not sure it actually helps Trump to do all that interrupting. I know he thinks it does, but like yeah. uh, for all the reasons that we were saying about the voters he may be turning off, maybe he'd be better off well, with some fade. Well, first of all, like the, there was the two-minute part, and then there's the open conversation afterwards. And most of his interruptions did not come in the two-minute part. Most of his interruptions came in the open conversation, where he would not let Biden get a sentence out. In the two minutes, he generally, like once Wallace, once Wallace pulled the choke collar, he would generally stop interrupting. 
it was the period when they were both supposed to be engaged in cross talk that he would interrupt. And I don't know how you would stop the mics in that. Yeah, I thought the two minutes was a bigger problem than you're suggesting, but you're basically right. And I don't think Wallace could have done anything different, by the way. There's no way. Well, I it was agree. interesting. I, Sorry, David. You Go ahead, no, no, Emily. No, please speak. No, no, please. <laughs> I respect both of your songs. (laughs) Thank you. I was just going to say, I don't remember. You speak, and then I'll speak next. It'll come back. (laughs) I honestly don't remember either. (laughs) Well, we were talking about uh, about Wallace. There's nothing he could have done anymore. Oh, I remember. I was going to say that I thought one thing, in the beginning, it seemed like Wallace was not going to rein them in at all, right? The first few minutes were just pandemonium. And I actually, in the moment, I was worried and kind of unsettled. But then I thought it was effective that it took Wallace a little while to step in. And so it made it feel like he had waited until he really felt like he had no choice. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. John, we will go back to this question. Every time there's a debate, I want you to give the same answer. So it was a debate. There was you know, much talk about how interrupting the president was, what a bully he was, like how, you know, but Biden, Biden was not so fast on his feet. Does any of this make a difference in the polls, do you think? Well, we'll have to see. Um, it certainly <laughs> will make, it'll certainly make a difference, you know, now. I mean, it, so the president's going to do something to distract from the negative reviews. If it didn't change the polls, it didn't, it might have some. It might have locked them in. I mean, we have in our polling about ten percent of the country is either undecided or has decided but could move, and so some of those people might have locked in for their you know original preference, probably for Joe Biden. I don't know that the polls afterwards show that more people kind of locked in to feeling supportive of Biden than. So more Biden supporters who were light Biden supporters locked into being strong Biden supporters than light Trump locked into being strong Trump. So we'll we'll just have to see. But if one if a debate was going to matter in some way, I should think that um, this one and the and the basically thorough unanimity of bad reviews for the president um, would be something that might lift this into uh, into actually mattering. 
Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I watched a lot of Fox last night. Uh, no offense, John. I also watched a little CBS. I caught Don Jr. on CBS, actually. Um, but my only point was I was interested that even on Fox, the immediate analysis was somewhat critical and it never became unanimous praise. I mean, Sean Hannity totally had Trump's back. And for the most part, um, you know, some other folks did, too. But it, it was there. People were daring to criticize. Emily, what did you make of Chris Wallace ad-libbing, apparently, a whole section about climate that was not uh, it was not anticipated? It is the first question about climate, I think, since the 2008 presidential debate, even though this is the most important issue the world faces right now. Um, were you glad to hear that talked about? Do you think it was a there was no good conversation uh, last night, but it, there was there was something closer to a conversation about that subject than about anything else. I mean, I was really glad to hear it getting attention. I don't know why Wallace didn't preview it, because maybe that would have improved the answers. Uh, you know, Trump <laughs> likes to talk about the idea that if we just sweep the forest, manage the forest floor a little better, that's going to take care of things. And, you know, Biden starts talking about jobs and renewable energy, which is a better answer. But it, you know, it wasn't Whatever. It was so hard for any of that actual debating to feel edifying, given all the Michigas going on. Right. John, did you think it was somehow important that he raised it? Because the, uh, as you have said, the whole atmosphere was such a was such a cluster of n nastiness and misery and horror that it's hard to say like, oh, well, they, at least they discuss the important issues of the day like climate. Yeah, no, I think you could make the opposite case, which is it was one more piece of evidence that on the important issues of the day, the exchanges were totally sheared off and, um, and uh, not helpful. Um, I mean, I, I guess the, you know, you asked about the other two debates. I wonder about just debates and general. I mean, I guess they're, they're always going to exist. Everybody needs to gather around a moment. I mean, we don't have to be totally supine to the behavior of the candidates in this case, and particularly the president whose behavior tattooed the event more than anything else. I mean, we can take this as an opportunity to say, these are the big issues, and this is what we think about them. And I mean, in other words, use it as a moment of civic convening, I instead of just having to react to the, you know, smear on the television screen. So maybe that's something you can take away from this. But um, I just find the exercise so wearying. And I don't know what portion of it is the way it turned out last night or just in general, because there are so many questions that should be addressed and um, and thinking that should be prompted. And, and instead, we're off into this corner of some dark alley. We did learn stuff, though. I mean, or have things confirmed. Like, it was telling. Uh, oh, sure. As you totally rightly pointed out at the beginning, from like a gut level, you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's close with uh, a, a kind of more structural question. Emily, the strategy the president appears to be pursuing is to delegitimize the election. That is the thing that he is most animated about. It is the subject about which he uh, got exercise at the in the last five minutes of the debate. He refused to speak out to essentially say he would stand by and wait for this to be decided in a way according to the norms and laws of the country. 
And the way he is campaigning is also is not an attempt to expand his base or to win over undecided voters. It is an attempt to agitate his base. And if they don't turn out in numbers large enough to, to win him the election legitimately to make them feel that this this election has is not OK. Do you think that this can work? You've been studying the, the polling. You've been studying the kind of the the issues around mail-in ballots, the issues around voter disenfranchisement. Do you think that that he can win the election by stealing the election? The play is that Republicans think, and Trump has said this, that they're better off if fewer people vote. And so it's like an anti-enfranchisement strategy. And then also that the particular circumstances of COVID this year mean there is going to be extra pressure on election administration to run both in person and mail balloting with the mail balloting at a much higher volume in states that have never had a high volume before. So there is room for error. And that's the strategy is to press on that error. I mean, I really, really... um, in my bones don't like this because I want as many people to vote as possible. I just think that is better for the country no matter who they vote for. I I think it's kind of baffling, honestly. Like, Republican officials who are looking at how many more Democrats are requesting absentee ballots or have already early voted or are turning them in are worried. I mean, the people who Donald Trump has poll with are his supporters. So if he is telling them it's not safe to vote in this way and this is all chaotic and forget about it, I just am not sure that's really smart in the end. The other thing I thought was that for me, and I know because this is an issue I care about, like this informs, but I felt like this was Biden's most effective moment. And the thing I liked best was that he said, look, I'll accept the results. And so will he. Like, this is going to be over. Like, and I thought that was so important. I realized as he said it that I needed to hear that. (laughs) So can I just heap all the glory and the praise on that answer? Because- You're exactly right. Now, who knows if he's right or not? But what he did was he reached into the uncertainty and into the chaos, and he said, it's going to be okay. Now, again, that might be, but I totally, that's, you know what? (laughs) When was the last time you saw that, right? You haven't seen that in the last four years in any way. Yeah. Right. Other than, I mean, in a way that's legitimate uh, and uh, other than it's all going to be okay and COVID's going to go away by April. But okay. Okay. But yes, it's very nice for him to say it's all going to be okay. But if, you know, enough Republicans, especially Republicans in leadership and secretaries of state and key states and senators and and uh, Republicans, the conservative judges don't come out in favor of the basic legitimacy of a process that has been run pretty well for 240 some years, there will be trouble. Do you think that, that the, the president's agita is infectious enough that the, all these institutions and these people are going to be affected by it? It's a great question. I just, I think it's a, a two separate things. I mean, one is as a public leader, is your job to sow more chaos or to seek ways to have less chaos. And that's, uh, I think that that's all I was responding to with Emily, which is, I think it was a moment where Biden was trying to sow less chaos and, and, and lower the boil. Everything you say is an open question and, you know, should uh, be, be closely watched. One other thing, we have a vice presidential debate next week. Do either of you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, at least it will be two different human beings standing at the podium. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be totally that. It'll be bog standard. Pence is not capable of doing this kind of craziness, and he will not try. Right. I would have thought it would just be a fairly mundane 
debate. And that will what do you really think, John? I mean, I'm interested. What do you think that Pence's version of what Trump is doing will be? I mean, Pence is there's not a great record to run on, but will Pence run on the record or will he again sort of attack the legitimacy of the process the way Trump does? Um, I don't think he'll do any of that. I think he will try to smooth over. He'll say the president is great and that he didn't do any of the thing. I mean, remember what he did with Kane. He basically said that, that Trump didn't hold any of the positions that, well, that goes too far. That when asked about positions Trump clearly held, he said he didn't hold them. So um, there will be there will be some of that. I mean, it depends how much the moderator wants to have him answer for things that the president said. I mean, also the problem is Pence is head of the COVID response, you know, task force. So mm-hmm. like he's got some actual legitimate things to answer for that are under his purview. So that'll be interesting. But I don't. His muscles are not. Um, you know, align these ways. I suspect what he'll do is he'll paper over any unpleasantness. He'll talk about the radical left and, and it'll be, yeah, it, it kind of, although it's amazing how many moments from debate history about which I have high skepticism or not skepticism, but I'm not a big fan of, but come from vice presidential debates. Hmm. A greater share than from a, from presidential relative to the fact there's only one of them. Interesting. I mean, I think Harris is like, she will be, I would imagine, extremely well-prepared, capable, careful about modulating her tone as the only woman among these four people. She has to watch out for the gender dynamics of this. I want to go back to your point earlier, David, about voting. I think that it's possible that Trump's total over-the-top attack on the integrity of the election is actually something that in state and local election offices is not supported and that actually in some ways when he goes this far it makes it easier for people to stand up for the system and the process in some way as joe biden says inshallah (laughs) yeah and yeah it's still possible that a lot of things could go wrong but i do think it's important to remember like the american voters have the power to decide this election like they just do and trump can try really hard to take that away from him. But if they exercise it in huge numbers, like he, he it, they really, really increase the odds that they get to decide not, you know, a judge or him or Congress. All right. That is our special debate episode of the GabFest. It's Wednesday. We'll be back tomorrow, Thursday for our regular episode for the week. We'll talk about this and much more president's taxes and hopefully you know, I don't know. Maybe the world will be better tomorrow. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> the Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas, managing producer. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you tomorrow. It's good to be with you all. That makes me feel better.